the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She is the co-author, along with her mother and Graham Lotz, of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Former Secretary of State Hill. Did I even mention that James Blend is the producer of today's program? Did I even mention that Sam Maupin is engineering? How could I have missed such an important announcement? Thank you, Sam. Anyway, to the headlines. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton refused to answer questions as to whether or not her presidential campaign spied on former President Donald Trump. She was asked by a Daily Mail reporter in New York City on Tuesday, did you pay to spy on the Trump campaign? And when are you going to comment on the spying allegations, Hillary? Well, today, the former Secretary of State did comment. She made light of the accusations and sort of laughed them off. Well, the mainstream media spent years fixated on alleged collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, but have largely downplayed or otherwise ignored the court filing from the special counsel John Durham altogether as part of his investigation into the origins of the sprawling Russia probe. My, how things change. Well, the missing girl has been found. This is quite the story. Police in uh, Saugerties, New York. I'm sure I must have mispronounced that, recovered a six-year-old in her non-custodial parents' home on Monday. Her mother and grandfather were there. Uh, She was found alive in a hidden alcove under a staircase. She hadn't been seen since 2019. Uh, The police had been looking for her, as have her custodial parent, which I assume is her father. In any case, they had searched for her in that very residence. They happened this time to go into what looked like a little girl's room and upon further inspection, discovered a little alcove underneath the staircase where she and her mother were huddled, waiting for law enforcement to leave. She has now been found. I don't know much more of that story, but not having been seen for two years, she's six years old. So she would have been in kindergarten, presumably during the pandemic. Um, she would have missed even that. Uh, in this her sixth year. Well, Bob Saget's family filed a lawsuit Tuesday attempting to block officials from releasing further information regarding the comedian's cause of death in order to protect their privacy. Apparently, the coroner indicated that the bump on the back of his head looked more like someone hit him on the back of the head with a baseball bat than just a fall. Now, he may well have fallen, but that was the statement that has been made. And, of course, that generated a lot of curiosity. But Bob Saget's family is begging for privacy in this matter. Well, the Freedom Convoy of Canadian truckers that have been peacefully protesting in their country for weeks over the government's COVID-19 vaccine mandates have received significant support from Americans, according to the crowdfunding site currently facilitating donations to the group. And that, of course, is not is no longer GoFundMe. 
The Department of Justice needs to declassify. Former President Trump said the Justice Department should absolutely declassify the remaining records related to the original Trump-Russia probe, especially in light of special counsel John Durham's latest filing. We'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Tuesday blamed hate-filled rhetoric and language around the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic as a driving force behind an uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans. Hmm. In a case of Canadian outrage, Freedom Convoy spokesman Benjamin Ditcher told Sean Hannity on Tuesday, when I say peacefully protesting, I would call it more of a demonstration because what are we guilty of? Some trucks parked illegally. He went on to say, I'm not sure that that warrants the response from the government. Retired U.S. Representative Jason Chaffetz says the bombshell revelations filed Late last week by special counsel John Durham and ignored by most of the mainstream media could have profound implications on Americans ability to trust our institutions. That's just what we need. Another excuse not to trust or rather reason not to trust our institutions. Greg Jarrett weighs in saying the stunning revelation that lawyers for the Hillary Clinton campaign paid a computer technology company to surveil a sitting president shows that more than half a dozen crimes may have been committed to advance the false accusations that he colluded with Russia. Now, she has never been charged with a crime. It's not clear she knew what was going on. So there are a lot of unanswered questions at this point. The investigation is ongoing, and I would caution against jumping ahead in terms of what this might mean. But it does raise some very serious questions. Mike Berry points out that the purge has begun. Thus far, three branches of the military, the Navy, Air Force and Marine Corps, have discharged more than 650 members due to their objection to the Department of Defense vaccine mandate. The Army recently announced it will soon join those branches, kicking out hundreds, possibly thousands of service members because of their belief uh, is not uh, only devastating Uh, to troop morale, but also harms our national security interests. I'm not sure what their status will be uh, once the uh, restrictions are lifted. Rebecca Grant says, uh, warns rather, that American uh, can't sit this one out. Back up to uh, backed up by China, Putin has yanked fresh U.S. military forces into Europe. As months go by, the U.S. will be stretched thin, covering NATO's eastern flank, plus the Pacific, where China looms. Add in 7 percent annual inflation, and it's a huge cost in the defense budget. Well, the media has dismissed the blockbuster story that... The Wall Street Journal editorial board says the press court doesn't usually support government spying, but when it comes to Donald Trump, they're making an exception. The journalists who gave themselves prizes for uh, pressing the Russia collusion narrative that turned out to be false are now dismissing news that their narrative was inflated with false information collected by eavesdropping on Mr. Trump. The story concludes, we don't apologize for thinking that all of this is news that readers might like to know about. The mystery is why the rest of the press corps wants everyone else to ignore it. And uh, Hillary Clinton has just recently made a comment without actually answering a question. Voters see Democrats as preachy, judgmental and focused on culture wars. Now, isn't that how the right that conservatives were supposed to be um, characterized? Well, this came from their own research. So Democrats consider one another preachy, judgmental and focused on culture wars. This is for midterm election research. Rather interesting. So I guess all of us now are considered all of those things. We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I say we because Sam Maupin is on the other side of the glass. I'm not delusional, well, at least not in that area. Anyway, I want to remind you, coming up in the second hour, we'll hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She co-authored a book along with her mother and Graham Lotz, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Well, the Biden economy issued another disastrous inflation report. Producer prices uh, jumped 9.7 percent in the last 12 months, increased 1 percent in January, according to the latest release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, as inflation continues to run red hot on the president's watch and blew past investors' expectations, according to Market Watch. ABC News reports that Afghanistan feels safer with Taliban rule. Yeah, I thought I'd misread that, too. Let me just ABC News reports that Afghanistan feels safer. That's a quote with Taliban rule. But apparently that's the trade-off for economic collapse, hopelessness and girls mostly kept out of school, not to mention those who have headed for the hills to try to escape what will certainly be their death. San Francisco voters recall three board of elections members by astounding numbers. Three woke members are now gone. Quite a story behind that. If we have time, we'll go into it. Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says Jim Crow is already happening in Texas and Florida. Remember over the weekend when AOC said she believes Texas will turn blue? Well, somebody needs to explain what Jim Crow actually means. I don't think she gets it. Anyway, now she says they're a bunch of racists. So one day, one thing, next day, another. Well, Florida tourism is better now than before the pandemic. Apparently, people love freedom. And according to a new poll, most Californians say the state is heading in the wrong direction. These are actual residents. But will they stop voting for those they've supported in the past, the cause of all the trouble? Homelessness and crime, both clearly at the feet of the party in power, are the top issues. Or will they just move away and try to change the political landscape in places like Florida and Texas? A California school saw a mass walkout over their mask mandate. The kids are done wearing masks. Carol Libu writes, so we don't have royalty in America, except, except rather for those who get to ignore mask requirements while imposing them on little children. And that is happening across the country. Well, the inflation metric hit 9.7 percent. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the year-over-year producer price index rose to 9.7 percent in January, hitting a near-record high. The report comes after consumer prices increased 7.5 percent last year. With inflation soaring to a 40-year high, the PPI being 2% higher than the CPI is an indicator that high inflation is here to stay for some time, not quite as transitory as we were led to believe. Well, this uh, further undercuts the White House claim that corporations such as Big Meat and its efforts at consolidation are the primary culprit behind consumer price indexes, or consumer price hikes, rather. Job Creators Network President and CEO Alfred Ortiz observed higher borrowing costs also hurt consumers and small business, but inflationary spending spree in the name of COVID-19 has left the Fed with no other choice. Well, this inflation problem was not caused by businesses, but by a government spending spree. Cutting government spending and raising interest rates may be the only real way to bring inflation back down, something Washington is loath to do. 
Well, the growing parade of uh, Democrats are leaving Congress on Tuesday. <clears throat> New York Representative Kathleen Rice, no relation, became the 30th House Democrat to announce retirement at the end of the current term. Obviously, this further dims the prospects of holding that narrow majority in that um, chamber. As National Republican Congressional Committee spokesman Mike Berg contends, 30 House Democrats have called it quits because they know their majority is doomed. Well, that may not be the reason that they're leaving. But nonetheless, recent polling may be motivating this um, exodus. A Trafalgar uh, Group survey found that voters favor Republicans 54.4 percent to Democrats at 41.9 percent, setting up November as a proverbial bloodbath for Democrats in um, in Congress. Well, only voting tells you the actual outcome. We'll have to see what happens closer to the midterm election in November. GOP senators want Democrats on the record on COVID vaccine mandates. Several Senate Republicans announced their opposition to a government stopgap spending measure unless there's a votes on vote rather on defunding COVID vaccine mandates. We will continue to stand against these mandates until they are discontinued in ambition, design and practice. That's a uh, quote from Senators Mike Lee, Roger Marshall, Cynthia Loomis, Mike Braun, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz. When the last stopgap measure passed in December, Republicans included a similar amendment to defund vaccine mandates, but it failed 48 to 50. Socialist gun control activists have been arrested for attempted murder of a Louisville mayoral candidate. Louisville Democrat mayoral candidate Craig Greenberg was recently shot at while in his campaign headquarters by a young man who happened to be a socialist anti-gun activist. Greenberg is himself a gun control advocate and took the opportunity to stump for his anti-firearm platform, saying too many Louisville families have experienced the trauma of gun violence. Too many aren't as blessed as me, end quote. Ironically, Greenberg's attacker, Quentin Brown, appears to have fully embraced such sentiments as his social media history is littered with both pro-socialism and anti-gun comments, such as Kentucky's concealed carry law shows your life doesn't matter to gun-loving Republicans. Hmm. Well, President Biden's Department of Justice ignored Trump's crossfire hurricane declassification order and Republicans rescued President Biden's FDA commissioner nominee, Robert Califf. Allison Gollist is out at CNN after an investigation revealed violations by top executives and the U.S. military spent six million hours on climate, diversity and extremism under the current administration. I hope they're still prepared for potential Uh, readiness. Republicans have a double digit lead in a generic congressional ballot and 40.5 percent of kids born in 2020 had unmarried mothers. Forty two percent of them were born on Medicaid. State funded babies. Do they belong to the state? Well, the pandemic era sparked a small business boom. There have been 5.4 million applications to start companies in 2021. And a key indicator, hence, America is headed for its worst real estate crash in history. Well, in the most recent example of parents flexing their muscles, San Francisco recalled three members of the city's leftist school board. There are only three up for re-election. Others might have fallen had they been on the ballot as well. Well, Levi forced out a top executive for prioritizing children's well-being over corporate wokeness. And in a case of royal privilege, Prince Andrew settled the sex abuse suit against him with the Virginia victim for an estimated 12 to 17 million dollars, according to The New York Post. Novak uh, Djokovic says he's willing to miss tournaments over his status uh, uh, being unvaccinated 
and Give, Send, Go is up and running again after a cyber attack. Ottawa's police chief resigned in the wake of the Canadian pro-liberty protests in opposition to the mayor's um, position, or the governor's position, or whatever his role is. China is taking steps to cut down on abortions amid low birth rates. On this day in history, 1862, the Civil War Battle of Fort Donelson in Tennessee ends as some 12,000 Confederate soldiers surrender. Union General Ulysses S. Grant's victory earns him the moniker Unconditional Surrender Grant. 1868, the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is organized in New York City. 1945, American troops land on the island of Corregidor and the Philippines during World War II. 1948, on this day in history, NBC TV begins airing its first nightly newscast, the uh, Camel Newsreel Theater, which consists of Fox Movie Tone newsreels. 1959, Fidel Castro becomes premier of Cuba a month and a half after the overthrow of Batista. 1961, the United States launches the Explorer 9 satellite. 1968, the nation's first 9-11 emergency telephone system is inaugurated in Haleyville, Alabama, as the Speaker of the Alabama House places a call from the mayor's office in the City Hall to a red phone at the police station, also located in City Hall. 2001, President George W. Bush meets with Mexican President Vicente Fox on the first foreign trip of Bush's presidency. 2001, also on this day in history, Dr. William Masters, who um, with his partner and later wife Virginia Johnson, pioneered research in the field of human sexuality, dies in Tucson, Arizona at age 85. The couple's work was the basis of the Showtime series that I wouldn't recommend you're watching. 2003, on this day in history, more than 100,000 people demonstrate in the streets of San Francisco to protest a possible U.S. invasion of Iraq. 2009, in Stamford, Connecticut, a 200-pound chimpanzee named Travis goes berserk, severely mauling its owner friend, Charla Nash. Travis is shot dead by police. 2014, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, during a visit to Indonesia, calls climate change perhaps the most fearsome, destructive weapon and mocks those who deny its existence as or quintessential uh, question rather its causes, comparing them to people who insist the earth is flat. 2018 and an indictment special counsel Robert Mueller accuses 13 Russians of an elaborate plot to disrupt the 2016 U.S. presidential election with a huge but hidden social media trawling campaign aimed in part at helping Donald Trump. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, former presidential hopeful Mitt Romney officially launches his political comeback attempt, announcing that he was running for the Utah Senate seat that had been held by Republican Orrin Hatch, who chose not to seek reelection. Romney would be elected in November, defeating Democrat Jenny Wilson. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that later in the second hour, we'll hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She is the co-author, along with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, who, of course, is Billy Graham's daughter, of the book Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Also want to remind you, in the wake of Valentine's Day, that our Cash for Couples contest continues. You have until the 28th of this month to enter to win. We're giving you a chance to design a celebration of your own making with our $1,000 Cash for Couples promotion. Plan a weekend, a special night out, a gift you've uh, been saving for. 
Get um, get all the information at kpdq.com. Click on Cash for Couples to enter. You can increase your chance by entering once a day between now and the 28th of this month. And if you share the contest on your social media platforms, you can earn 10 uh, bonus entries for each of your friends who also enter. It's our annual Cash for Couples contest where $1,000 can help you celebrate in a big, big way. kpdq.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, San Francisco residents overwhelmingly voted to oust three of its city progressive school board members on Tuesday. It was the culmination of a year-long effort to reform the board, which has been accused of prioritizing social justice politics over reopening schools and managing the district's troubled finances during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, returns started coming in at around 9 p.m. in California. That's last night. Uh, showing that more than 70 percent of voters supported recalling each of the three candidates. Seventy nine percent voted to recall board member Allison Collins. Seventy five percent voted to recall board president Gabriela Lopez and 73 percent voted to recall board member uh, Maliga. Well, he conceded defeat via Twitter uh, shortly after the first returns were released. Turnout for the election was about 24 percent. Um, with uh, registered voters in San, in uh, the San Francisco area casting ballots at a relatively low number. Democratic Mayor uh, London Breed um, is now tasked with appointing three new members to the seven-member board. Collins, Lopez, and Moliga uh, were the only members of the board who were eligible to be recalled. Their seats are up for re-election again in November, but in the interim, she'll have to appoint uh, people to replace them. The voters of this city, she said, this is San Francisco's um, breed. Uh, the city of San Francisco has delivered a clear message that the school board must focus on essentials of delivering a well-run school system above all else. San Francisco is a city that believes in the value of big ideas, that those ideas must be built on the foundation of a government that does the essentials well. Well, the election marked the end of a year-long recall campaign launched by uh, parents, uh, two single parents and Bay Area tech professionals spurred on uh, uh, to action rather by their frustration with the board's refusal to reopen the city's schools well into the COVID-19 pandemic and well after many others had already done so. Well, instead of focusing its efforts on developing a reopening plan, the board had been preoccupied with woke culture war issues, expending energy on changing the admissions process at a highly selective Lowell High School because, in their words, too many Asians were being uh, admitted uh, and um, closing or closing schools and renaming schools that they thought were inappropriate, including Presidents Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, who were named on those schools and a proposal to spend close to a million dollars to paint over an historic 80 year old mural at a local school that depicts the life of Washington, but also includes outdated stereotypes. Well, the board became the focus of national ridicule last February after a two hour debate over whether a gay white dad was diverse enough to join an all female volunteer parent committee. Now, he was a gay white dad fathering a African-American kid, but that wasn't good enough. All the while, the district's budget deficit ballooned to about $125 million last year, and that led California education officials to threaten a state takeover. Well, the Department of Education there sent an expert in last year to help the school board devise a plan to close that gap. Well, last March, 
Uh, Collins was stripped of her committee assignments and her title of vice president after recall organizers unearthed a series of anti-Asian tweets back in 2016 in which she chastised the Asian-American community for not sufficiently speaking up against Donald Trump as if they had some sort of obligation to speak politically for or against anyone. Momentum for the recall was building for months. Polling last summer found that about 60 percent of San Francisco residents and 69 percent of public school parents favored the recall. The pro-recall organizers brought in more than $1.9 million for their efforts, dwarfing the roughly 86,000 raised by supporters of the three uh, board members. Both the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner endorsed ousting the three board members from their seats, with the Chronicle claiming they failed irredeemably to shepherd the district through the pandemic. Well, the board members and their supporters alleged the recall was part of a right-wing plot to politicize public schools, as if a right-wing plot could succeed in San Francisco, Uh, but it did succeed, and they are officially out. Well, Democrats are reportedly being warned to deny that they favor open borders and amnesty on the thorny subject of immigration and the ongoing crisis at the southern border as they gear up for what could be a difficult midterm fight for many candidates. Well, Politico, which is no partisan rag, reports that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is recommending strategies to endangered lawmakers as they um, hope to avoid a barrage of attacks from their opponents, the Republicans, on a variety of issues from defunding the police to critical race theory and immigration. Well, included in the documents political viewed were moves to rebut GOP talking points. The strategy reportedly included this tip. Democratic um, candidates should deny support for open borders or amnesty and instead talk about their efforts to keep the borders safe. Uh, That might prove to be a tricky task since Democrats have by and large supported administration efforts to dramatically roll back the border protections of the previous administration, like the border wall construction, uh, migrant protection protocols and Title 42 public health protections. Meanwhile, many have also backed a number of congressional efforts to grant amnesty for millions of immigrants entering the country illegally. Well, Democrats pushed for an immigration plan approved uh, Within days of the president's inauguration, which eventually became the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 and was headlined by an eight year path to citizenship for illegal immigrants already in the country. But with no Republican support in the Senate and a 50 50 chamber in the House, the effort faded away. Instead, they included various forms of amnesty in their proposals for the Build Back Better Act which could be passed via the budget reconciliation process and therefore not be stopped by a Republican filibuster. So far, that has not succeeded. Well, the bill outlined a variety of proposals for amnesty or protections for those entering the country, in addition to sweeping changes to illegal immigration. The first of those plans would grant a pathway to citizenship for DACA and temporary protected status recipients, farm workers and those deemed essential workers. Uh, however, the plan was rejected by the Senate parliamentarian in September, who ruled that it was inappropriate for a budget bill as the measure dwarfed its budgetary impact. Well, lawmakers then proposed a plan B to update a registry to allow amnesty for illegal immigrants who arrived before 2010, which was also rejected by the parliamentarian. Finally, 
A much more limited Plan C would allow expanded parole powers to grant legal status, including work permits to an estimated 8 million illegal immigrants for up to 10 years. That, too, met with disapproval of the parliamentarian. Well, some Democrats pushed for the parliamentarian to be overruled, but ultimately the effort uh, stalled after Senator Joe Manchin said that he wouldn't back the bill, having already previously poured cold water on the chances of him supporting amnesty measures altogether. Well, meanwhile, meanwhile rather, the crisis at the southern border has continued with little sign of slowdown. More than 178,840 migrant encounters took place at the southern border. And those are just the encounters, not those who avoided encounters in December. And there are indications that the numbers could heat up again later this year. Well, the administration has claimed the numbers are uh, uh, fueled by root causes like violence, corruption and poverty in Central America. Republicans blamed the uh, policies of the administration instead, saying a message uh, they're likely to take with them on the campaign trail. So trying to um, dampen the uh, impact of those decisions during the midterm elections is an effort, according to Politico, that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is recommending for those either seeking reelection or election. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, co-author with her mom, Anne Graham Lotz, daughter of Billy Graham. Jesus Followers, that's the title of their book, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next generation coming up in the next hour well while covid19 cases continue to fall across the country thank you lord following a surge of highly transmissible omicron variant many states localities schools they've decided to loosen pandemic restrictions we've waited a long time for that that movement well on wednesday university of wisconsin system officials said that they're planning to end campus mask mandates by spring break which is typically in march the group cited widespread vaccinations, a waning case numbers across the state and on system campuses. Uh, they're going to potentially withdraw mandates as soon as March the 1st. Now, you might recall here in the state of Oregon, March 31st, we're told, is the latest that we can expect that masks will no longer be required by the state. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, private uh, restaurants and uh, retailers and so on can't require them in their facilities, their private facilities, but... Uh, they will not be required by the state. Well, school mask mandates will end on March the 1st there, according to the Virginia governor. Uh, that's uh, Glenn Young. And he made a big uh, announcement earlier today uh, in the General Assembly if they adopt the um, amendments made to uh, just pass legislation on the issue. The bill passed by the legislature yesterday gives or I should say Monday gives parents and students the ability to opt out or in to the imposed um, local school boards. However, the legislation wouldn't have taken effect until July the 1st. So Yunkin added an emergency clause to the legislation, allowing it to take effect immediately upon passage and added a provision giving school districts until March the 1st to develop plans to comply with what will become the law. Well, the amended legislation now has to pass both the legislative chambers. Again, the governor, um, Vermont's governor, I should say, Phil Scott, announced on Tuesday that schools there with a student vaccination rate of 80 percent or higher do not need to require masks. Schools should know this is um, 
Only the first step in the very uh, near future, if all goes to plan, we intend to recommend lifting the mask requirement recommendation altogether. The target was developed at the start of the school year and is something that schools have had time to plan for as uh, the February 28th deadline approaches. So good news in some places. Now, several states across the U.S., have announced plans to lift mask requirements in schools and statewide, in some places statewide, but not in schools. Um, They've extended their uh, mask mandates uh, for children, but not adults. In Nevada, Governor Steve Sisolak, he dropped a statewide requirement last week. Some uh, shed their masks while others decidedly kept them on. Choice, freedom. Uh, It should save somebody's life, uh, said one 11-year-old. I can wear the mask for that. So giving people the choice under the current circumstance seems to be the direction that we are headed. Later in the program, in fact, after my conversation uh, with uh, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the truth behind the masking um, policy that we have lived under and uh, the, uh, the ideology that so often fed um, the decisions that were made regarding what we were required to do. Remington has been charged $73 million in a settlement that uh, Nate Jackson, and I would agree, suggests sets a bad precedent. Now, Remington, of course, makes firearms. He makes the point that there was one person responsible for the murder of 20 first graders and six teachers at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, in December of 2012. And that is the deranged man who murdered his mother and then stole her rifle to perpetuate the atrocity. The maker of the gun, Remington, wasn't responsible for the criminal actions of its user, yet Remington just settled for $73 million with the families of the Sandy Hook victims. I think all of us realize the tremendous loss, not just to those families, but to society in general, when you have 20 first graders who are murdered along with six of their teachers. It it produces outrage in us. And yet, is this the right solution? Well, He makes the point that nothing will bring back those beloved kids or their teachers, and we wish only comfort and healing for those who lost loved ones. But does this set a precedent that we want to um, to live with? This settlement is not justice. He goes on to point out one clue is that Joe Biden hailed it as historic. He opined while this settlement does not erase the pain of that tragic day, it does begin the necessary work of holding gun manufacturers accountable for manufacturing weapons of war and irresponsibly marketing these firearms, which, by the way, lawmakers make available to the general public. He's been a lawmaker for decades And the law permits individuals to possess these firearms. So should Remington be held accountable or should lawmakers who permit individuals to own these guns? Uh, Remember, this is the legal genius who claimed to have once advised his wife that if you want to keep someone away from your house, just fire the shotgun through the door. That's a direct quote. The um, settlement, $73 million dollars means that the manufacturer of this weapon used unlawfully is held accountable for its unlawful use. Now, the implications are of significant concern. Now, technically, any weapon that can be used to kill people probably has been used to do so in war. But the gun this assailant used was not the same type of rifle used by American military personnel, despite the deliberate misinformation peddled by uh, opponents. 
Um, the Bushmaster AR-15 is not a select fire weapon. It is a relatively small caliber semi-automatic rifle that functions in the same way. One trigger pull, one bullet, as the handguns used by inner city um, criminals to murder each other every day in um, urban centers. The same way as handguns used hundreds of thousands of times a year by law-abiding citizens in self-defense situations. Well, as for the settlement itself, the reason it's historic, as the president said, is that it exploited an exception in a 2005 law shielding gun manufacturers from liability lawsuits. Now, that exception was for marketing and the families blamed Remington's ad for inspiring the killer. Um, For the record, those ads didn't say or imply anything about using the rifle to murder children or for that matter, to murder anyone. It was absurd um, to say otherwise. In fact, it is a gun grabbing, um, not gun manufacturer who routinely mischaracterizes the guns as assault weapons. That was not how it was um, was promoted. Now, again, this is a tragedy that cannot be reversed but the precedent that's been set is certainly concerning. Mark Alexander wrote, In the days following the massacre, Connecticut already has a ban on assault weapons, and the Newtown School was already a gun-free zone, but that didn't prevent the murderers of these precious children and six adults. In fact, the assailant violated more than 20 laws in the commission of this historic crime. This horrific crime. Even if the uh, murderer saw a Remington ad, which the plaintiffs never produced evidence proving, he never bought the rifle in the first place. He stole it. Maybe he simply saw too many Hollywood movies. Either way, the settlement doesn't account for the truths Alexander listed in his article. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court declined to hear Remington's appeal and the company was left with little legal choice. Well, this case uh, set a terrible precedent. The people who will ultimately pay higher prices are law-abiding gun buyers and people who purchase insurance from the same companies used by gun makers. In other words, the cost will be borne by people who had nothing to do with committing any crime, much less the crimes at Sandy Hook or the next mass shooting in which victims are awarded a a settlement. Not from the victim, but from presumably the manufacturer. Well, on a final note, this is clearly a threat to the Second Amendment, but it goes beyond that. Imagine a different scenario for manufacturers of other things. What if automakers uh, who run ads with people driving aggressively or suddenly liable for the tens of thousands of people killed on American roads every year or even just the random Um, The racist who plows his SUV into a crowd and kills several people. Should they also be held liable? What if ice cream or potato chip makers are to blame for the 659,000 Americans who die of heart disease every year? What role do McDonald's commercials play in America's obesity epidemic? Where does this kind of liability lunacy end? Now, you might think, well, that's ridiculous. It may sound ridiculous, but it's entirely possible applying the same principle. Perhaps gun manufacturers should have their own version of Section 230 immunity clause uh, like big tech. But this sets a precedent that could broadly be applied. We need to take a break. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. Also coming up in the next hour, our guest, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, author, I should say co-author, along with her mother Ann Graham Lotz of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Well, everyone is still watching the uh, 
the border between Russia and Ukraine, wondering what's going to happen next. Well, one of the things that happened, Ukrainian officials are investigating cyber attacks that occurred Tuesday that brought down websites belonging to its Ministry of Defense, Army and popular banks. And now I'm calling the incident the largest of its kind in the history of the country and suspect Russia is the culprit. Well, the uh, distributed denial of service attacks comes as U.S. and NATO continue to cast doubt on Russian claims that uh, some of the 150,000 troops amassed along its border with Ukraine are heading back to their permanent base. There doesn't seem to be evidence to support that. Russia has engaged in cyber attacks and electronic warfare in terms of a precursor to physical and kinetic activity. That's a quote from the director of the McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security at Auburn University, uh, citing past cyber attacks in Georgia and Ukraine's Crimea region. Well, the uh, attacks uh, can be pretty effective if utilized in support of other means. It's not about the attack itself, but if you are able to um, uh, disrupt communications of some sort and then you have ulterior motives, then clearly it can be effective. He went on to say that Russia did this with the with um, Estonia in the past, massive um, disruptions uh, on the banking sector and the Estonian government. Well, Tuesday, cyber attacks targeted at least 10 Ukrainian websites and customers at the state-owned uh, banks uh, reported issues with online payments and the bank's apps, uh, according to the Associated Press. Yesterday, the 15th of February, the largest attack in the history of Ukraine was carried out on government websites on the banking sector. The deputy prime minister uh, was quoted as saying, speaking to Reuters, this attack is unprecedented. It was prepared in advance, he, re- he uh, said, continuing uh, mentioning how the attacks designed to flood websites with traffic and shut them down involved IP addresses from Russia, China, Uzbekistan and the Czech Republic. And the key goal of this attack is destabilization. It is to sow panic to do everything so that a certain chaos appears in the country. Well, the uh, individual who leads the cybersecurity department of Ukraine's state security services said today that the only country that is interested in such attacks in our state, especially against the backdrop of massive panic about a possible military invasion, the only country that's interested in the Russian is rather the Russian Federation. Well, the Kremlin, meanwhile, denied Russian involvement, but said it wasn't surprised Ukraine would try to blame them. Hmm. According to Reuters, a senior U.S. State Department official said on Tuesday that we have reached out to Ukrainian counterparts to offer support in their investigation of and response to these incidents. Uh, Meanwhile, I've been seeing images of and hearing reports of Ukrainian Christians in the country who have decided they are not going to panic, but they have given themselves to pray. I've seen images of worship services in which churches are Um, worshiping and asking God for protection, asking him to intervene in the situation. I've seen images of Ukrainians outdoors uh, on their knees, kneeling on the grass, on the ground, uh, praying and asking God to intervene. And I hope as we are watching what's happening with the Russian military, as we're speculating what the United States might do in response to any kind of military incursion, as we're speculating about NATO and Uh, the role that it's likely to play in all of this. I hope we're also remembering to pray along with brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are asking God to intervene, uh, to intervene. I'm reminded of the scripture that says that God can change the course of a mighty river and he can change the heart of a king. He can prevent uh, events that are certain 
uh, that have been declared. And we're not altogether sure what Vladimir Putin's plans actually are, but we certainly can pray uh, for those in Ukraine who I can imagine are fearful of what the future might hold. I mentioned yesterday that since 2014, there has been war in Ukraine. So this is not altogether new. It hasn't covered the entire country, which is very large, and Russia would have a hard time occupying. Uh, But that said, this is not new to them. Uh, But believers are humbling themselves and asking God to intervene. And that encourages me, and it also challenges me to join them in prayer that God would do something extraordinary and unexpected to avoid the military conflict uh, that's being threatened there. Well, in other news, Senator Tom Cotton, he's the Republican out of Arkansas, he says that he's worried that some U.S. athletes competing in the Beijing Olympics could be exposed to long-term surveillance by China's communist regime. He says our FBI had to recommend that our athletes take burner phones and devices. He said on Tuesday in an interview with the Heritage Foundation's new president, I think a lot of them did, maybe not all of them. Maybe the uh, they used the same passwords for their devices they left behind. Well, the Arkansas Republican added during this interview with Kevin Roberts, um, I'm very worried about what kind of all-encompassing electronic surveillance. I'm worried about them exporting the DNA of our athletes for years to uh, to come under the pretext of coronavirus tests, having collected their DNA and uh, added to uh, added it to the massive databases that were they are collecting. He had called for President Joe Biden to work with a coalition of allied nations to push the International Olympic Committee to have the games rebid and hosted by a free and democratic country. He cited issues in China, such as the regime's genocide of Uyghur Muslims, the apparent cover up of the origins of COVID-19 and other events. The administration instead chose to conduct a diplomatic boycott. Cotton argued that the Winter Olympics are considerably smaller in scale than the Summer Olympics and wouldn't be difficult to relocate, particularly to an area that has a real winter. Cotton also noted, the senator, that in a meeting between French President Emmanuel Macron and Russian President Vladimir Putin, that Macron refused to take a COVID-19 test because he didn't want Russia to have his DNA. But that's what our athletes have had to uh, to do over the last couple of weeks. So I'm still very worried about our athletes, uh, the senator went on to say. Again, I hope that they all get out safely later this week and they aren't exposed to a lifetime of surveillance and exploitation. That's why we should uh, have never put them in uh, this place to begin with uh, under these current uh, circumstances. He also talked about the dangers posed by the growing influence of the China lobby over the U.S. government and U.S. corporations and the need for decoupling from such relationships. Quoting the senator, unfortunately, China in its growing economy has spread its tentacles throughout American society to the extent that they have a vast and influential lobby in the quarters of power in Washington. Hollywood is deeply, deeply in the pocket of Beijing, both for money to fund its own movie production, but also to get market access in China. Likewise, giant corporations that have outsourced so much of their basic manufacturing, not only costing jobs here at home, but also giving China more influence in corporate America, Uh, which then gets reflected in Washington as well. Well, the senator noted that during trade negotiations between China and the Trump administration, a lead Chinese negotiator demanded a meeting with the heads of Wall Street banks to uh, put pressure on the White House and on Congress to try to cut a better deal with China. Cotton said his Senate office issued a report last year on decoupling from China, breaking off the United States' heavy dependence on the communist country. There are measures the United States can take, the Arkansas senator pointed out. 
He'll continue to follow these efforts, although it's uh, doubtful they will uh, make the kind of progress he is hoping for. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She's the co-author, along with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, of the book, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, parents and grandparents today are raising what's been called the least religious generation. That's according to Pew Research. Well, what can Christian families do to make sure that their faith is not only lived out in their homes, but received by the next generation? Well, in their first book, Together, um, Anne Graham Lotz and daughter, uh, who is, of course, the daughter of Billy Graham and her daughter, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, use vivid stories from the Graham and Lotz families as motivating and down to earth examples of how parents and grandparents can effectively pass the baton of truth to the younger generation. Their book, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. And oh, how desperately parents want to uh, to do just that. Well, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, she serves on the board of directors for Angel Ministries, in addition to holding the position of ministry teaching associate and chairing the weekly prayer team that undergirds her mother's ministry. A graduate of Baylor University, she teaches an online weekly Bible study that draws thousands of people globally. Co-authored with her mother and Graham Lotz, Jesus Followers is her first book. She and her husband Stephen live in Raleigh, North Carolina with their three daughters, and we're just delighted to have her with us by phone today. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Well, just uh, just delighted. Um, let me ask you what inspired this book. I mean, obviously, parents and grandparents, as I mentioned, want to pass their faith along to future generations, but I think are less confident than perhaps previous generations in their ability to, to do that with all the competing interests and ideas that are out there. What motivated you to write this book? Well, when my girls were small, they're all older teenagers right now, but when they were young and I was taking them to school or to birthday parties or whatever, I was noticing that the parents that I knew that knew the Lord, I could tell they weren't passing it on to their kids. There there just wasn't any Bible being taught in their homes, and they were leaving it up to the school or to, um, you know, if it was a Christian school or to their church, and, and there was just a disconnect, and it made me so sad. And so I thought, you know, maybe they didn't have an example in their home. Maybe they grew up and didn't have parents or grandparents that set the example of how to pass it on to the next generation. And so maybe they wanted to, but didn't know how. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I felt burdened to write this, because by God's grace, I was put in this family with two sets of grandparents that love the Lord and then my parents. And, And so I thought, well, I'll just write these stories and maybe give them uh, a bird's eye view and an idea of what it looks like to have a home that, that follows Jesus and how to pass that on. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, oftentimes parents feel like if I don't have a seminary degree, if I don't have a degree in mm-hmm. science, if I am not uh, savvy on the cutting edge of all the cultural changes, then maybe I can't influence my sons and daughters. But the truth is, parents have a significant role to play and uh, should be grateful that God has put them in a position where they can have significant influence if they know how to, to go about it. Yes, that's exactly right. And we we can have such an impact on our kids. And, you know, I feel like the biggest thing that we can do as parents and that I saw my grandparents and parents was they loved the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They 
they were authentic. They didn't fake it. They weren't phony. You know, they didn't go to church and then come home a different way. Mm-hmm. They lived it. They lived it out in the home. And and so when we show our kids or our grandkids that we genuinely love Jesus and we genuinely love His Word, that is contagious. Then it then it's like they believe. You know, they can watch you and see what's real in their life. Then it could be real in my life too. And kids can spot a phony from a mile away. And <laughs> and so it's so important for us to be for real in our faith, which means. Are we, you know, do we love Jesus with all of our hearts? And are we studying our Bibles ourselves and praying and and um, and being that example to our kids? Yeah. And what a tremendous treasure this book is for first generation believers mm-hmm. who look to their children and they don't have that heritage that you've just described. But this is a great resource to help. Now, when I was at the University of Oregon, I was on the track team and I was on the relay, the mile relay and the four by 100. You compare passing your faith to the next generation to a four by 100 uh, relay race. And I get that. Can you explain it to our listeners who maybe haven't had yeah. that baton passed on to them? Yes, well, you would probably explain it better than I could, but just with the relay, when the 4 by 400 which is what we've always loved to watch, you know, at the Olympics, or yeah. growing up going to, I used to go to the Carolina, University of North Carolina track meets, and, and seeing them run all the way around the track, and they have to pass the baton off to the next person, and that person runs all the way around, and and, and you have to be careful of how you pass the baton, or else they'll drop it, you know, or mess up the race, and you lose, and and so just that idea of that's what we have. You know, we have our relationship with the Lord. We love the Lord. We read the Bible. We pray. And and it's so important for us to pass it on to the next generation or else it's dropped. It's lost. It's, you know, they're, we're setting them up for failure if we don't teach them um, this wonderful relationship with Jesus. And um, and so that was the whole idea of passing it on to like a baton and um and you know there's a passing zone which you probably could explain mm-hmm. better but if you don't pass it within that passing zone then then you lose and so um i think it's important to pass it within the passing zone and a lot of times we can't do that we have grown kids but we think you know when the kids are young and they're in your home that's like the passing zone where where you can invest in them and teach them about god's word and Tell them what he's teaching you in your life and and get them excited about Jesus while they're in your home. And and of course the Lord can still work if they're already grown adults and you're and you're just now wanting to tell them about your relationship with Jesus. God can still do that too, but it's much easier in the passing zone, you know. Let's talk about how the book is structured. You have it in four parts, and I think it helps uh, parents to recognize the role they can play in uh, passing their faith on to the next generation. Can you explain those four parts, our witness, our worship, and so on? Yes. And so we, um, so my mom wrote the uh, introduction to the book, and that was taken out of Genesis 5, which is the genealogy. It's the part that a lot of people skip over. <laughs> but um, but when you read through the genealogy, you see how, you know, there was Cain and Abel, and then Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, and then there was Seth. And Seth loved the Lord, and then he passed it down, and, and we followed 10 men um, through those generations that passed it on to the next, and the next, and the next, and, um, and so Noah was one of them, and, and different men like that, and, and so under each one, it's our witness, our worship, our walk, and our work, and so under those four categories, then I wrote stories 
um, that would fit the example of what that is, what it is to be a witness and what it is to worship the Lord. And, and so I just wrote practical stories that I saw, you know, in my, both sets of my grandparents or my parents and, and um, what happened in our home just to give people an idea of what that looks like. And such beautiful stories they are. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but let me ask you, you touched on this a few moments ago, but I want to emphasize it. Before we can pass on uh, the the baton to our our children, the Mm -hmm. next generation, what's the first thing that we need to know for ourselves in order for that to, to happen? Yes, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus yourself. And, and, you know, I did when I was about five years old, I was watching an Easter program and that's when I told my mom I wanted to ask Jesus in my heart. And I believed in my, in my five-year-old mind, which is okay. You know, I learned more as I grew, but, but um, that Jesus had died on the cross to take away my sins, that he suffered. He was perfect. He was never sinned before. He was the son of God. And he died on the cross to take away my sins and wash me clean, past sins, present sins, future sins. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to come live inside of me. And he's with me always. He guides me. He encourages me. And and um, and so that's when I place my faith in Jesus. And that's what you have to do. You have to have your own personal relationship with Jesus, where there's a time in your life that you actually can pinpoint, this is when I told Jesus I was sorry for my sins. This is when I asked him to come live inside of me. And um, a lot of times I tell people to write it in their Bibles, you know, write down on this date, this is when I, you know, pray to receive Christ. And, um, and then your walk with the Lord begins, and you get to walk with Him and grow and, and build this relationship with Him. But it has to start there. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and then you can pass it on, yes. We are talking this afternoon with the co-author of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. My guest is Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She wrote the book along with her mother, best-selling author of uh, The Jesus in Me and Graham Lotz. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She's the co-author, along with her mother and Graham Lotz, of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Now, some of our uh, listeners might be tempted to think, look, Billy Graham and Ruth Bell Graham Mm -hmm. were your grandparents. Of course, you you know, the faith uh, faith was passed along to you. Uh, and they don't know much about the Lots side of the family. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your paternal grandparents and the role that they played in your faith. Yes, oh, they were wonderful. So my grandpa, my dad's dad was German. My grandmother was Italian, and they were from New York City, and um, and just loved the Lord. My grandfather was a pastor in the worst part of the Bronx in New York. And he was a wrestler in college. He was a big guy. And um, and he loved the people of the Bronx and all actually all of New York City. And he was also one of those guys that would preach on the street corners to anybody who would listen. And he'd get on the subway and share his faith with people on the subway. And just so faithfully had such a heart for the city. And my grandmother was uh, hygienist way long before people, women were really working on the workforce like she was, but she was a hygienist on Fifth Avenue. And, um, and so she would work all day, take the subway home and then help my grandfather in his church. And, 
Um, and so they served the people of New York and um, worked with the homeless people and um, people, alcoholics and different people like that. And, um, and so they loved the Lord and they were very bold, very unafraid of speaking about their love for Jesus. And, and so I got to see that even in our home, they'd come visit. I would see my grandpa sitting over his Bible with a magnifying glass because he couldn't see good. And he would just sit there and read and read and read for hours. He'd have me read the Bible to him out loud. And, and, um, and so I just saw this deep love for the Lord and really a sacrifice for their lives to, to live in harsh circumstances and, and deal with people that were really hurting and struggling, but they loved it because they loved Jesus. How would you say, um, let's stay with your um, your paternal grandparents, mm-hmm. um, how would you say they their example influenced you as a young woman? Mm, I feel like they influenced me because like my, my other set of grandparents, like my parents, it was their genuine love for the Lord that they were willing to give up everything to follow him, to serve him, and um, and live that example. In fact, there's a story I wrote about in the book of um, my dad. He was a star basketball player. He's this great basketball player, and he made the varsity team his freshman year in high school. And he was so excited. He came home to tell my grandpa that he had made the varsity team. He had his first start on that Friday, coming Friday night. And my grandpa said, you can't go play in that basketball game. We have to be down at the Bowery Mission. You have to play the trumpet before I preach. And my dad always played the trumpet at this mission place that is still in New York City today. And um, and my dad was so upset to have to miss his first varsity game that he was going to start in. But but he always did that. He always played the trumpet down there. And and my grandfather, after they went down there, my grandpa preached. My dad played the trumpet. And knew, my dad knew he had missed the game. Grandpa in the car told my dad, he said, Daniel, he said, you have to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek the Lord first, and then all these things will be added unto you. And my dad went on to start all four years in high school. He went on a full scholarship to the University of North Carolina to play basketball, was um, in the Olympic tryouts, and um, and just won the national championship at Carolina um, against Wilt Chamberlain. And so God really did give back all these things to my dad when he, when he gave it up. And, and I just commend my grandfather for taking such a stand when sports has become such a God yes. in our, in our country right now. And, and I really struggled with that because I have a daughter that was a star goalie, a soccer goalie. And, and we were gone on Sundays a lot of times and traveling and doing these um, tournaments and I just remember my grandfather and just his strong stance for the Lord and even when it came to sports. And, um, and so it made such an impact on me, and I'm so grateful for that. And um, so that's one, one example. Well, you share some funny and some heartwarming stories in Jesus Followers, as well as some hard things like the death of your father. Um, how did you select which stories to include? Obviously, you have different subject headings, but how did you se- select which stories to share in the, in the book? Well, it was actually very simple. I and I started writing this when the quarantine hit. So the Lord was so good because He gave me time. But um, every morning I would get up and just pray, "Okay, Lord, bring the story to mind that You want me to write. What is it that You want me to write?" And He 
always did every morning. And, and so then I would just write the memory. I would write down what I remembered about that story. And, and, um, and so that's how God did it. And I feel like, so I actually feel like these stories in this book, I feel like it's from the Lord. And I feel like this is a message that the Lord is just using me as a mouthpiece um, of the family that he put me in to show other people, to point them on how to pass it on to that next generation. And, um, and there's all kinds of stories in there that um, hopefully keep you entertained. I mean, I've got ADHD, and so <laughs> I have to have stories to keep me entertained. And so hopefully this is um, this is will be something like that. I think it's a, it should be a page turner for you. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a tremendous curiosity. You know, what's this? What are you third generation away from your grandparents on your mother's mm-hmm. side? Um, you know, what what does this young woman remember about the legacy of her grandparents that we think that we know personally because they have been yeah. so beloved for so long? Is there a favorite story you can share with us? There's one um, that I I just love because it meant so much to me was a story that my dad about my dad and it was on grace and. My sister and I had gotten in an argument. I think I was probably about eight years old, and we had gotten in some kind of argument. And so she was chasing me through the house. I ran through the house, and I slammed the glass door on her, and it busted. I heard it just crackling and falling on the ground. So I just ran as fast as I could, hit my mom's station wagon. And, uh, you know, a while later, I heard my mom coming out yelling my name. And so I got out, and she sent me to my room, and I just knew I was going to get it. You know, I knew I was going to get punished. And and um and I heard my dad coming up the stairs and and he came in and he sat down on my bed and, and he looked at me and he said, Rach, he said he called me Rach and he was like, Rach, you deserve to be punished for what you did and he said, But instead I'm gonna teach you about grace today and I'm gonna take you to get some ice cream and I was like, What? I, I couldn't <laughs> even believe it. And um and then he told me about the grace that God gave us on the cross, you know, and he sent his son, like I was saying earlier, to die on the cross to take away our sins. And even though we deserve to be punished for our sins, um, God, Jesus, you know, shed his blood to cover them and and to give us that right relationship with God, restore a right relationship with us with God. And, and so I've never forgotten that. It just gave such a picture to me of God's grace. And, um, and so I've got that story in there. I've got stories about my grandfather and how he he would give us his full attention we called him daddy bill and daddy bill would give us his full attention even though he's this busy busy evangelist always traveling everything whenever i walked in the room it was like i was the only person and he would sit there and talk with me and pray with me um you know over whatever was concerning me at that time and um and my grandmother really spoke into me when I was in high school, really struggling with um, just being insecure and having a lot of mean friends. And, and my grandmother used to write me letters and encourage me and give me scripture. And, oh, I could go on and on. But there's just um, so many that um, meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, the good news is the book, Jesus Followers, is full of stories that will encourage, inspire and help um parents, I think, to understand the significant opportunities they have in raising a family Mm -hmm. to minister to and to convey the gospel. Once again, the book is titled Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Um, Rachel Ruth, thank you so much for talking with us today and for the book. Mm -hmm. I know you're the mother of three daughters, and so you're walking this out. And I think Mm -hmm. many of our listeners today will be blessed by the stories of your family that will encourage and help shape their own. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Such a such a sweet uh, sweet book. And then it's uh, at the very beginning. Uh, Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, this was written, of course, to that first generation family uh, of, of believers as God was preparing his plan that would be unfolded some many years um, in the future. But nonetheless, be encouraged. You can have a significant impact in raising your sons and daughters and passing your faith along to them. And this is a great book to help you do just that. Again, Jesus Followers. The book is published by Multnomah, so check it out. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a lot of back and forth going on right now with regard to vaccinations and masking in Canada. Of course, that truck convoy continues for those who support the freedom they're seeking. It is a uh, an opportunity to rally behind them for those who live in the area and who are prevented from their livelihoods. It's a frustration to them. Then you have the leadership that's decided to go far beyond by uh, applying emergency powers that have never been applied under these kinds of circumstances. So there's a lot going on and different perspectives based on where you happen to be standing during this whole event. But it really centers around people being tired of the two-year uh, pandemic um, imposition that we have been under. Well, I noted that um, editors from the uh, Patriot Post uh, wrote a piece in brief, the truth about masking madness and really people being very mad uh, about the whole thing, how schools handled um, masking and the pandemic, uh, how government officials uh, politicized the whole issue from the very beginning and then attempted to depoliticize it. By then it was too late. Well, anyway, feel safe in a mask. Wouldn't touch one with a 10-foot pole. That probably represents the, the two ends of the continuum listening here today. Somewhere in between. Well, how about the most basic of questions? Do masks work to prevent COVID infection? Now, we have been told uh, by those in positions of authority that that is the case. We wear them because they make a difference. Well, author Ian Miller dared to find out, and reporter Jeff Schulenberger reviewed his work, and I wanted to share some of that with you. Well, last summer's Delta wave and the divergent policy response to it, Schulenberger said, created an opportunity to examine the impact of mask mandates. Well, unfortunately, virtually no one cared to take that opportunity. The reason most of them would likely have said Uh, If pressed on the subject was there was nothing to learn, the science was settled. And that's what we have been led to believe. Well, for their part, critics of masking and other non-pharmaceutical interventions typically relied on principled assertions of freedom. Well, this gave them little reason to examine the evidentiary basis of these policies since they would have rejected them on moral grounds, even if they worked. Only a few skeptical observers drilled into the data that could be found on sites such as the New York Times, even if the paper's own reporters made little of it. Well, the most prolific of these was Ian Miller, who over the past two years, being very diligent, has published copious data-driven commentary on the track record of various COVID public health interventions, things we were required to do. Now, Miller arrives um, 
time and again at the same conclusion that the ad hoc pandemic mitigation policies rolled out since 2020 have systematically failed to achieve goals. Now, he's now compiled um, uh, one subset of his graphs and commentaries into a book titled Unmasked, The Global Failure of COVID Mask Mandates, which focuses solely on the most ubiquitous pandemic containment strategy deployed by government worldwide, and that's the mask. Well, the endorsement of masking by medical bodies and public health authorities worldwide, Miller shows, entailed the abandonment of a longstanding view that masks were a useless and even harmful intervention. But if you dared to say that out loud, you would have been ostracized. Well, over the previous decades, numerous um, randomized controlled trials had asserted the efficacy of masks in controlling the spread of respiratory viruses like influenza and pandemic simulations had evaluated their potential. So this wasn't brand new emerging with this particular uh, pandemic. A document published by the World Health Organization in 2019 framed the results of these studies in no uncertain terms. And I'm quoting, there was no evidence that face masks are effective in reducing transmission of laboratory confined influenza. It's unsurprising then that when the CDC briefed reporters on the pandemic in February the following year, masking was not even mentioned among the NPIs that might be deployed. The U.K. government, too, stated early in 2020 that there was no evidence to support masking. Why did the experts ignore their own pre-pandemic recommendations then? Well, politics and virtue signaling might be two of the answers. The data and the science simply didn't change. In light of the earlier consensus, Miller's findings in Unmasked shouldn't be surprising, as we might have predicted based on the plethora of trials and meta-analysis published prior to the pandemic, mask mandates... Um, have had little to no demonstrable impact on curbing the spread of the virus. Miller reaches this conclusion by comparing areas with mask mandates of longer and shorter duration with each other and with areas that never imposed mandates at all. The result, he shows, simply do not support the standard adage that masks save lives. Now, we've heard it often enough, and it seems like it's a, it would be a good idea, but is that what the science says? Well, there are some... Isn't clear-cut evidence that masks did nothing, but likewise, there's no evidence they did anything. Now, the most disastrous failing of the experts has been their lack of curiosity about the actual results of the policies they've staked their reputations on, primarily because they've never been challenged by the uh, the mainstream media, whose job it is to ask questions, to be curious. Well, mask mandates have been, in Miller's phrase, a population-wide experiment, but few within the U.S. scientific and medical establishment have seemed interested in parsing the resulting data, leaving that task to outsiders like Miller. Astonishingly, there have been just two randomized controlled trials on making published on masking, rather, published since the pandemic began. One found no significant effect at all, while the other found a small effect of 11% for surgical masks and no significant effect for cloth masks. The first was largely ignored or dismissed, while the second was optimistically glossed as proving that masks work. Moreover, even the most bullish case for the uh, technical efficacy of at least some higher quality mask doesn't constitute a case for mask mandates, a distinction that most commentary um, evades. Well, the only way to measure the efficacy of mandates is to look at their actual track record. This is what Miller has done, and the results, he argues, is clear. Mask mandates have demonstrated very little impact, if any, on case curves throughout the United States and in many other international locations. 
Schulenberger went on to add, Miller is justifiably derisive about the experts who have oversold dubious policies at every turn. But the ironic implication of his book is that much of the expert guidance from prior to 2020 has been vindicated. Before COVID appeared, scientists and officials advised time and again that masks would be ineffective at containing a pandemic respiratory virus, and the evidence Miller has compiled suggests they were correct. As for the politics, he explains, it's not difficult to see why mask mandates proved irresistible to politicians. Masks are the perfect form of hygiene theater, conveying an intuitive scene of safety regardless of demonstrable efficacy at scale. They also offload responsibility for controlling the pandemic to ordinary people. The overcrowding of ICUs can be blamed on the bad behavior of anti-maskers rather than on the allocation of resources by governments and hospital CEOs. When cases of deaths spike, it is the fault of the citizenry, not the leadership. And he concludes making us all put masks on was the expert class mask off moment. And what we see now isn't pretty. It seems that across the country we're seeing more and more um, states lifting their mask mandates. They're basing that on the numbers of COVID and hospitalizations. But it's rather interesting to consider what we knew before the pandemic, what was done during the pandemic, and what the argument is today as the pandemic essentially is winding down. I put an asterisk on that. Uh, with the proviso that we don't know what's coming next. And one of the reasons the COVID-19 lockdown and mask policies lost public confidence was their utter corruption by ideology. When thousands in June of 2020 defied quarantines and yet were excused by over a thousand healthcare professionals claiming that woke agendas justified violating quarantine laws, then millions of Americans concluded government policy was as much about identity politics as saving lives. Which politicians in 2020 trashed the the vaccine programs and declared they would likely not get inoculations if they were endorsed by the current president? At that time, it was Donald Trump. If Trump is demonized as a destroyer of election legitimacy, what then are we to say of the beautified Stacey Abrams? She lost the Georgia gubernatorial race by more than 50,000 votes, yet for years she has maintained the voting was rigged and the elected governor illegitimate. In 2000, who challenged for weeks the vote count despite numerous public and private audits confirming George W. Bush's popular vote victory in Florida? Well, it goes on from there. The The bottom line is politicizing the issue, failing to acknowledge what uh, science we knew and what science we could better understand if it had been monitored throughout these last two years, has led to growing skepticism among those who um, are required to wear their mask, but witness those who are imposing the standard uh, refusing to wear their own in public and private outings. Super Bowl 56 being the latest example. Well, we are out of time. Tomorrow I'm looking forward to inviting Hope Hamilton to join me here in studio for the India Partners Days of Safety Radiothon. That will be throughout the day here on KPDQ and from 4 to 6 here on the Georgine Rice Show, giving you an opportunity to help young boys and girls escape what is a life of, well, I don't even quite know how to describe it, a life you would not want for your children uh, in India. So that will be our um, subject, and I hope you will plan to join us tomorrow and give generously. I want to thank James Blend, our producer, Sam Maupin, today's engineer, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.